Welcome to Mind Matters News. This is Dr. Michael Egner, and I have the pleasure today of uh, speaking with my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Stephen Post. Stephen is an internationally recognized authority on uh, Alzheimer's disease and other uh, disorders of uh, memory, and he uh, has written a wonderful uh, book uh, recently, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical I Issues from Diagnosis to Dying. Uh, and he is uh, extremely interested in the um, ethical and philosophical issues related to the care of deeply forgetful people. Stephen's a graduate of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and he has extensive training in clinical pastoral care. And uh, he is the uh, founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, uh, Compassionate Care and Bioethics here at Stony Brook. And Stephen and I have known each other for many years. Uh, we've uh, both taught in the uh, ethics course here for medical students. Uh, and Stephen is a, is a very good friend. Uh, so Stephen, welcome. And it's a delight uh, to s uh, speak with you uh, on My Matters News. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm really grateful. Uh, and I'm looking forward to an exciting conversation. And me as well. So uh, to, to, to begin, your new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, why did you uh, use that title and what do you mean by deeply forgetful people? Well, that's a fabulous question to begin with because the title doesn't quite say it all, but it's close. I've been working with deeply forgetful people and their caregivers since I went out to Case Medical School in 1988. And I uh, have never felt comfortable with the term dementia, uh, at least in, in a public sense, because it's a, it's a term of decline, dementia, from a former mental state. And it very easily uh, leads to negative metaphors like husk, shell, gone, absent, even dead, vegetable and the like, that's very unfortunate because it, first of all, leads us to think about them being so categorically different from us, so it's a them versus us type thing, but also it blinds us to noticing, and noticing is a very important word, noticing the hints and the expressions, which are sometimes spontaneous and sometimes uh, elicited by music or nature or olfactory type uh, uh, phenomena and apple pie, people come back into themselves to varying degrees. And our job is to notice and to embrace that and to stimulate it. And so that we can realize that grandma is still there and, and it may be a bit mysterious for us, uh, but deeply forgetful is much more a concept of continuity we all have our forgetful moments. I, I'm sure I do out in the parking lot when I'm looking for my car desperately and wondering if I even drove to work today. <laughs> but, uh, but sure, um, you know, uh, deeply forgetful. It's almost mystical in its intonations, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, deep forgetfulness uh, frees us from some of the chronological pressures running around from point A to point B to point C and always being so worried about hypercognitive values, linear rationality. I talk a lot about symbolic rationality, which is always there with these individuals. Um, 
and can be stimulated through many, many different devices. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm wanting to get away from the word dementia. What do you mean by symbolic rationality? That sounds fascinating. Well, that's, a, that's an important question. So I knew a fellow in, uh, I spent 20 years in Cleveland. I knew a fellow who uh, had severe Alzheimer's disease. He always clutched his cowboy hat, even to his last day of life. And it was as though he knew that somehow his identity was connected with that symbolic object. And as it turns out, I learned from his daughter, he had worked in the steel mills on the west side of the Cuyahoga River all his life, and he always dressed country and Western. So somehow he knew that that symbol was important to who he was. You can take de Kooning, the great abstract expressionist artist. He was diagnosed at Cornell Weill New York Hospital. And for 14 years, he had dementia, most likely of the Alzheimer's type. For 13 and a half of those years, he would paint. He would be in a loft in Greenwich Village. He was accompanied by a, an assistant. Uh, he always wanted to wear the same pair of painter's dungarees. And they had several, several of them splattered with paint so they could wash them and so forth. But, but he knew that that was who he was. And sporadically, he would rise up, take his paintbrush, and dip it in the acrylic paint. Then he would go up to the easel, and he would, he would uh, paint. And his, his early painting, when he was fully, quote-unquote, intact, was so anxious, and he was really uh, one of the, uh, the most incredibly forceful painters of the age of anxiety. But as he became more deeply forgetful, he became more quiescent. Uh, he painted things that looked a lot more like Georgia O'Keeffe. The colors brightened up, and I think he came into himself, believe it or not, artistically, Later on, of course, some of the critics said, well, he was a husk, a shell of his former self. But the one I liked said, wait a minute, he had Alzheimer's for 14 years. And for 13 and a half of those years, he knew he was an artist and he painted. And uh, there was a posthumous exhibit of his work uh, at the Metropolitan. So I think we always have to recognize the continuing presence of symbolic uh, identification I tell the story in the book of a fellow I met at uh, a, a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio, and um, it was a special care unit. Joe Foley, the famous neurologist and I, who was my mentor, uh, we went into his, uh, Jim's room and we read his little bio sketch on his wall and we knew he had a couple of sons. And the nurse guided me out with Joe uh, to meet Jim and, uh, and I took Jim to a table. We sat down and I said, Jim, uh, how are your sons? And he couldn't respond. But then I said, how's, how's Davy and how's Luke? And by using language to cue him and prompt him, he actually lit up a bit. He wasn't conversant, but he lit up. And then he had a white twig in his hand. Talk about symbols, a white twig in his hand. It was painted white and the ends were blunted and wasn't harmful in any way. And he put it in my, in, in my hands and he smiled, this effusive smile. And if, if love was electric, that place would have been on fire, Mike. And and, and then he said to me three words. He said, God is love. Huh. And it turns out, I asked the nurse, uh, that he grew up on a farm in uh, northeastern uh, Ohio. His father was a Christian. 
and uh, they went to church and his father loved him very much. And, and Jim associated tender, loving care with that period in his life to which he had gone back. And that symbol, that, that, that white stick was a symbol for the kindling, the nurse said. And his father had always had him uh, go out and get the kindling in the morning uh, as he was growing up. And so that was his way of reconnecting with his loving dad. Very interesting, fascinating. The um, the uh, I'm also fascinated by the the uh, reference to uh, de Kuhn to to the artist, and um, that uh, artistic ability may be not only retained but perhaps enhanced in people who uh, become deeply forgetful. Um, I know that uh, there are uh, people with autism uh, who have remarkable uh, artistic abilities. Do you see a connection between the two scenarios? Yeah, well, I have a lot of interest in in autism, and and you know, we did the Stony Brook guidelines on the care of people with autism, and published it in about about ten years ago. But most definitely, people with dementia who have there are case studies of this, which are uh, across the literature. Individuals who have never been artistic before, who have never been skilled at painting or drawing, uh, a certain small subset. There are probably 15 to 20 cases uh, in the neurological literature have become artistically disinhibited. And suddenly they're, they're, they're doing uh, images that are uh, reminiscent of say the Spanish caves, you know? And so there's something in there that they're connecting with. And it's quite, quite remarkable. I knew a guy who uh, would come into the, uh, elder healthcare center in the mornings. Uh, it was an art uh, support group, and he had his uh, black uh, crayon and, and the uh, uh, the white uh, paperboard, and he would just uh, very chaotically put down anything that uh, came to him. And we assumed it had no meaning whatsoever, but always down the middle of these pages, he would put two lines parallel. And it was quite remarkable because he did this day after day after day. Of course, if, 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 if we asked him in the morning, um, what is that line? He, he couldn't correspond at all. He couldn't speak. Uh, you know, he was, he was roughly mute in his, and, 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 and that, was the, that was the deal. But one morning we asked him, and he was particularly uh, lucid that morning because we do talk a lot about uh, paradoxical lucidity in these populations. And... Uh, he, he, and he look, I said, so, so what is this? What, what is this? It looks like, you know, these, it looks like a tree trunk. He said, no, it's a road so my daughter can find her way to my home. So there was more purpose and intentionality in that world of symbolism that he was connecting with. There was a famous New Testament exegete and a friend of mine named Leander Keck at Yale Divinity School. For many years, and his wife Janet succumbed to probable Alzheimer's. Eventually, she was just being escorted somewhat around the Yale Divinity School campus, but she wasn't uh, able to uh, communicate by speech and was, seemed to be quite uh, lost uh, most of the time. But when she went to the Yale Chapel, uh, which she had done for all those years uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, she would brighten up like a new day. Uh, she would get somatic when the hymns were sung. She would chime in with the hymns and sing them 
oftentimes all the way through to the end. Uh, she would brighten up when the when the light shined through the windows, and she would uh, very easily recite classic prayers, the Lord's Prayer, and so forth. And she she became symbolically alive. And then after those experiences in that symbolic community, she could actually converse, not for a long time, but she could converse for, say, you know, five to ten minutes and actually respond to people so long as they use language intelligently. Don't do open-ended questions. You have to, uh, don't say, what, 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 what did you have for breakfast? Did you have ham and eggs or post-toasties? That's close-ended. So you're always giving people language to use, and so they're not stressed out about trying to re- recollect some particular word. But she, she became herself for a period of time. It didn't last long, but it was incredibly stimulating for everybody who knew her and for, uh, for her husband because um, they realized, you know, Janet Keck isn't gone. She's not absent. She's not a husk. She's not expendable. She's not subhuman. Uh, she actually has moral considerability just like anybody does, but she's deeply forgetful. It's, it's, it's very interesting that um, back in the 19th century, uh, there were several philosophers who suggested that the relationship between the mind and the brain is not that the brain generates the mind, but rather that the brain focuses the mind. That is, that uh, there was, it, was a, it was a dualist perspective, that the mind has a, a very independent existence from the brain, and the brain enables the mind to function appropriately uh, in in nature and to meet our biological needs. Um, and that there are situations where impairment of the brain can actually enhance the way the mind works, which I find incredibly fascinating. Um, what, when you refer to paradoxical lucidity, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm talking about the roughly 80% of caregivers who self-report moments of absolutely surprising lucidity. They assumed that their loved one was gone, absent, a husk, a shell, incapable of being present in any significant sense. And yet, lo and behold, um, that individual either is totally spontaneously or sometimes prompted by symbols, by personalized music, will, will, will will, will actually come back into themselves. Music is the most effective in this area. There's a national movement called Music and Memory. And one of one of our medical students uh, and myself, Angela Lowe, uh, did a study of personalized music using an iPod here at the VA uh, nursing home on campus. And uh, we were in, in a unit where there were probably 30 individuals. They were all sitting in chairs. None of them were speaking uh you know they were they were ambulatory to some degree, and um, we took them uh, into the activities room. These were all, of course, veterans, and uh, the t- the big tele- the television on the wall with the furling flag uh, in 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 the wind. Uh, the the music was "God Bless America," and I will tell you that eighty percent of these people uh, actually stood up and sang a few lines, if not a whole verse, if not the whole song of God Bless America. And when they did that, they became somatically active. Uh, uh, They were uh, affectively present. They were capable of expressing 
all kinds of emotion. There wasn't that sort of distant, flat look that you that you uh, generally associate with deeply forgetful people. They were more there than not there. And then the question is, as you ask it, you know, does that mean that they really are there, uh, or or are these moments um, of uh, call it rementia? There's a word for you, rementia. Although they're fleeting, are they um, simply uh, the fragmented, sporadic uh, firings of certain neurological uh, connections uh, that are really meaningless and empty? Uh, that would be your materialist view, that mind is, in fact, matter. And uh, when the brain goes, uh, the mind goes, and all self-identity uh, is gone. Uh, and then we might as well put these individuals in, 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 uh, in Auschwitz. And, and of course, uh, you know, I, I, will, I can talk about what happened to these individuals in Nazi Germany when they were defined as life unworthy of life. Uh, as useless eaters and so forth. Uh, and many of them did wind up being killed in the hypothermia experiments. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is that if you, if you take a different metaphysical view, the one that I learned from the great neurologist, Sir John Eccles, who was at the University of Chicago, we briefly overlapped there. And he pretty much, he got the Nobel Prize for figuring out most of the basics of synaptic communication in, in brain cells. And I'm just going to quote something from, from him. It's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, it's from his book, The Evolution of the Brain. It's just a two lines. I maintain that the human mystery is incredibly demeaned by scientific reductionism with its claim in promissory materialism to account eventually for all of the spiritual world in terms of patterns of neuronal activity. This belief must be classed as a superstition. We have to recognize that we are spiritual beings with souls existing in a spiritual world, as well as material beings with bodies and brains existing in a material world. And that actually is, um, is my view of it. It's ve very interesting that... Um there were a number of, of classical neuroscientists, uh, Eccles, uh, Sherrington, uh, Penfield, uh, yeah. Benjamin Leibitt, uh, who were, who, who were dualists and who really embraced this, this viewpoint that, uh, the, that the mind and the spirit have an existence that's separate from, uh, from the brain and the body. But you see less of that nowadays among neuroscientists. Um, why do you think there's been such a materialist turn? In neuroscience. Well, you do see less of it. I think, uh, you know, Sir John Eccles was writing uh, in the 1980s, the 1970s, 1990s to some degree. But, you know, um, you're so correct. There are all these individuals of his era, uh, Sherrington, Penfield, Edgar Adrian, uh, these individuals were taken very seriously. And of course, if you go back a little further, Henri Bergson in, in Mind and Memory uh, had all these kinds of ideas. William James had these sorts of ideas. So the materialism of it all uh, is a relatively uh, Johnny-come-lately approach. And the, the, you know, the argument, I think, uh, is that it actually 
is somewhat implausible. It's, it's implausible to think that somehow this rementia, this experience of rementia, this return of, of a personal identity, that could be explained purely in, in terms of some small uh, segment of brain tissue. I think it's unlikely. So one of my great friends, a, a pastor in Cleveland, uh, his, his, he was from Detroit originally, very famous guy, I can't give you his name, but his sister died of Alzheimer's about a year ago. And I was talking with him on the cell phone, and I said, Pastor, are, are you with her now? He was with her the last couple of weeks of her life. And, I, and he said, yes. And I said, so what do you think, what is her state? Is she still there? And he said, yes. I believe she was. She is still here with us, although she may be down uh, at the Amtrak station, uh, or with one foot already uh, settled on that blessed train for glory. So he, what he was saying was that in a way, um, she was liberated from uh, chronological time. She was liberated from space and place. And she was already moving forward, he felt, to something um, that is a mystery, but is very beautiful. It's absolutely fascinating. And what's also fascinating is how so many different lines of evidence, uh, evidence in clinical medicine, evidence in the study of deeply forgetful people, evidence in exceptional recent uh, neuroscience research, all point to the same basic insight uh, that the mind has in existence. It is to some degree separate from the brain. I think I think that the definitive statement on this is by the great Princeton philosopher, considered really one of the greatest living philosophers of the 20th and the 21st century, Thomas Nagel. And Thomas Nagel was a philosopher of mind. He he hung out with all the great uh, neuroscientists uh, uh, of his day, and he still does. And his uh, his book, Mind and Cosmos, takes the view that the mind is part of some much larger reality. He, he talks about one mind, about, of course, Schrodinger talked about the, the one or the original mind. There's only one mind in the universe. That was uh, Nagel's point of view, too. Uh, and, you know, it's actually my point of view as well. I, I, I think that mind... We all, we all have the gift of the mind. We are stewards of the mind. The mind is, 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 almost, is equivalent with spirit to me. And uh, uh, it's something that we don't fully understand. But it's, it's very difficult to, in any way, rationally argue that mind can come from matter. I know there are probably a dozen pretty good people who have theories about how this can happen and they compete for funding and they're going to figure out how consciousness and mind comes from, from just inert matter. But I just think that's not going to happen. Yeah. I, I think the, one of the fundamental difficulties with explaining how mind can come from matter uh, is that our modern definition of matter really derives from Cartesian metaphysics from Descartes. And Descartes um, defined matter as stuff that's extended in space, as ponderous stuff, stuff that has weight and volume. And of course, things that have that are defined as having weight and volume are implicitly defined as lacking mental attributes. Uh, is that, that basically Descartes stripped 
mental attributes from physical things and put them in the soul in a, in a separate substance. So materialists work really in that same metaphysical framework that they strip mental things from physical things, but then they're stuck with a problem of explaining how mental things can arise from physical things, which they can't do. So it's a problem of their own creating, and it's a, res it's, it's a result, I think, of materialist metaphysics. I think that's correct. And, and uh, you know, I, I, would, I would say further that, you know, if you, if you look, uh, one time a reporter asked Bertrand Russell, if he thought there was any such thing as human dignity. Right. Now, Bertrand Russell was a devoted materialist. And uh, he said, and I'm quoting accurately here, he said, no, how can there be? We are simply glorified pond scum. Now, if you take that view, then you're right back to 19... 39 in Munich, when they took 70,000 individuals out of asylums, about half of them, the historian uh, Benno Mueller-Hill argues, about half of them had uh, dementia, senile dementia. They didn't use the word Alzheimer's at the time. And about half of them were cognitively developmentally disabled. And they, they, they felt that these individuals had absolutely no moral value. They were not members of the human family. Uh, there was nothing there to be concerned about. So uh, they, they put them out at night uh, in small groups to lie down in the cold snow. Uh, they would pack them in ice. They would leave them in freezing water for hours. Until then, they would bring them in, back into the asylum and they would warm them up at different temperatures in different mediums, sometimes water, sometimes hot air blowing on them. And uh, this, of course, uh, this is the T4 project, the Tiergestrasse 4 project. And uh, the German scientists said they were doing this because they wanted to know at what point it would it really become totally futile to send rescue teams into the cold waters of the North Atlantic for down submarines or whatever. Of course, that was hideous and, and no, no justification for anything like that. Uh, but at any rate, after a year and a half, the Germans, people themselves reacted to this because these people who were deeply forgetful, they weren't of this typically discriminated against groups. They weren't Jews, they weren't Polish Catholics, you know, they weren't uh, gays or whatever. Uh, and, 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 and they were, if you will, perfectly blue-blooded Aryans. And, and so the German people reacted against this, and the, the, the same uh, two uh, principal investigators who handled uh, the Tiergestrasse 4 project went right to the death camps of Dachau and also Auschwitz, and they began perpetrating or inflicting the hypothermia research on these different discriminated against populations. So I think it's always worth remembering that medicine got to its lowest point ethically ever. We're talking about the annihilation of people simply because they're having problems with their memory. They were uh, annihilated uh, first among uh, individuals with these cognitive uh, uh, disabilities, what we might call their, their being differently able nowadays. Oh, that's... Absolutely fa fascinating, Stephen. 
maybe we should wrap up the segment. Uh, and uh, this has been a fascinating discussion with my colleague and friend Stephen Post from Stony Brook. Uh, and thank you all for listening, uh, and uh, please join us uh, in the future for uh, more discussions. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Michael Eigner for My Matters News. Thank you. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.